Hi there, I'm Lisa, and welcome to the History Mysteries podcast, where each week I'll be taking a deep dive and researching a history mystery. And with the help of my fabulous guest, we will see if we can separate fact from fiction. Good morning and welcome to this part of who knows how many episodes we're going to be able to do on this on the Dyatlov Pass. We're in the middle of a heatwave here in the UK and it's caused my ME, my myalgic encephalomyelitis, go look it up, it's grim, um, to flare up really, really badly, which means that my brain is blanking out after a few minutes and I'm having to sleep a lot. So research is pretty much a no-go area at the moment. Um, it will get better. It'll be all sorted out eventually, you know, when it's not 30 degrees in the room. So huge apologies anyway for the fact that this is not what we were hoping for. I did actually manage to get some recording done at the beginning of the We Brits Just Can't Deal With This Kind Of Heat Wave. This is the factual story of the expedition using extracts from the diaries of the party that I was reading. Next time, when we eventually manage to record the next one, we will be actually going into what was found and then the multitude of theories. But for now, here's the part that most of us don't actually know, the part when the Dyatlov Pass expedition was still alive. As you can hear, I'm on my own for this part as Jim is hideously busy, but he will be joining us on part two, where we chat about the multitude of theories around what happened and discuss which ones we think could have legs and basis in actual factual information. Okay, so first let's set the scene, with me also apologising profusely for all of my bad Russian pronunciations. It's the new year of 1959 in Sverdlovsk, Russia. Yekaterinburg had been renamed in 1924 after the Bolshevik leader Yekov Sverdlov, and at the time it was a large industrial centre specialising in machine building and metalworking. During World War II, many technical institutions and factories had moved from Moscow, and as one of the largest growing cities in the Soviet Union, it was a place of excitement and opportunity. Freedom was finally felt after the years of heavy oppression under Stalin. Foreign film, music and literature was making its way into the USSR and the economic reforms of Khrushchev saw a much less repressive era, known as the Khrushchev Four. Censorship was relaxed and millions of political prisoners were finally released from the gulags. It was the golden age of Soviet science with the USSR launching Sputnik in 1957. Igor Dyatlov, the leader of the fateful expedition, even made his own telescope, which he set up on the roof of his house, and he and his younger sister would look at the satellite going overhead. His sister, Tatiana, is quoted as saying, It was so magical. Everyone believed that after he graduated, Igor would go into cosmonautics. It was a brand new industry, and he wanted to be part of it. Imagine, the war had just ended and the country was utterly devastated. Everything had to be restored, specialists were needed. Igor and his friends wanted to study serious subjects, engineering, physics, complex technical topics. Everybody wanted to work hard for their homeland. They were real Soviet people in the best sense of the word. 
Before we really make a start, I want to clear something up about place names. There are so many websites, Reddit posts, YouTube videos, including a rather special one that I watched called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives, and books out there on this subject. And over and over again, you will hear the titles Mountain of the Dead and Don't Go There. You know, just upping the already hideously ominous levels to 11. So let's clear this up. They were camping on the eastern slope of Klatsikl. I said that I was going to be mushing up these names. I'm going, I'm sorry. Okay, here's how it's actually pronounced. Klatsikl. Uh, which is a Russian translation of the Mansi name. So Kolat in Russian translates as meager, scarce, or dead. And that's where the Mountain of the Dead name comes from. But actually, the Mansi tribe name actually translates as lack of animals or lack of prey. The other major one is Mount Ototon. I couldn't find the etymology of the translation to don't go there. But again, the Mansi name actually just translates as the Windy Mountain. Pretty different, but, you know, the the truth doesn't sell books and film scripts. So let's get back to the story and what we know as fact. As I said, the new year was welcomed in with the start of the UPI, the Ural Polytechnic Institute's winter vacations. This was when students excitedly took part in a multitude of winter sports and tracks. Igor Dyatlov, a fifth-year student in his early 20s, planned a ski trip in the Ural Mountains, and the route was a grade 3 difficulty. Quoting from 1079, The Overwhelming Force of Dyatlov Pass by Igor Pavlov, For example, for the third ski category, the one that was planned for the Dyatlov group, it was equal in total length to at least 300 kilometres, of which at least 100 kilometres they had to go with overcoming natural obstacles, for example, steep uphill climbs, steep descents, making a path in deep snow, moving through dense forests with undergrowth, moving in treeless areas far from villages, etc. The total duration of the trip had to be at least 16 days, including in a completely unpopulated area at least eight days. This meant that the distance to the nearest village should be at least two large daytime crossings, so 50 to 60 kilometres. Moreover, they had to make at least six nights completely in winter conditions, so they had to fully organise the night with only the set of equipment that they brought with them. The overnight stay in huts, shelters, abandoned houses should not exceed 10 days out of the 16. So that's an overview of what a grade 3 difficulty trip was. The students who were to be part of the fateful expedition were Igor, 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 the leader, a fifth year radio engineering student and one of the most experienced athletes in the group, Zinaida Komogorova, 22, from the same faculty, Yuri Doroshenko, 21, who was studying power economics, Alexander Klevatov, 24, who was studying nuclear physics, Yuri Krivonishenko, 23, Rustin Slobodin, 23, and Nicholas Thibault Brunyol, 23, who were all engineering students, Ludmilla Dubininia, 20, and Yuri Yudin, 22, were both studying economics. 
Semyon Zolotoryov, a 38-year-old sports instructor who had fought in World War II, was the odd one out and was brought in at the very last minute to replace Vladislav Bienko, who didn't get leave soon enough due to a multitude of admin errors on the part of the UPI hiking club. The students didn't know him, and as Luda wrote in her diary, At first, nobody wanted the Zolotaryov, for he is a stranger, but then we all agreed, because you can't refuse. Thus, as we were ten, and remained ten, for Slava was not released by the Faculty Bureau. On the list put forward for participants of the hike, Yuri Vishnevinsky, who failed his exams and wasn't given leave to go, Nikolai Popov, who wasn't released from work, Bianco, who I've already mentioned, and Yuri Varaturov, who didn't even know he'd been put on the list until after the incident. I'm going to say now, I'm sure that I've pronounced all of those wrong. I'm really sorry, but hopefully you get it, you get the gist of what their names were. The planned route was to start at Vichy Village, where the Dyatlov group got to at 2pm on the 25th of January. They would then ski to the second northern settlement, an abandoned labour camp of 24 houses, which they were to arrive at on the 27th of January at 11pm. The plan was to then ski to 1,182 metres to Mount Otorton, and then from there south to Oiko Chakur, and then north along north to Shemka River, and then back to Vijay where, because of the weather and the conditions, they weren't predicted to arrive back until the 15th, even though officially they were due back in Vigée by the 12th. The group were in high spirits on arrival at Vigée, watching the Austrian romantic musical Symphony in Gold. Ludmilla Dubinina wrote in her diary, We are extremely lucky. The symphony in gold was showing. We left all our things and packs at the hotel and went to the club. The image was a bit fuzzy, but it didn't overshadow the pleasure at all. Jurka Krivo, sitting next to me, was smacking his lips and ooing with delight. This is real happiness, so difficult to describe with words. The music is just fabulous. The mood after the movie greatly improved. Igor Dyatlov was unrecognisable. He tried to dance and even started singing. Before departing, the group checked with Ivan Rempel, who was a forest officer, to confirm the route, and they were warned of the perils such as heavy winds along the Ural Ridge. At 10am on January the 26th, the group all sent messages to their friends and family and left by truck to go to the logging community called District 41. Then, on the 27th, the group hired a sled to take them the 24 kilometres to the second northern settlement where they were due to start out the main leg of their journey. The Dyatlov Trek diary informs us, Yuri Yudin is still with us. He suddenly fell ill and can't continue with the trek. He wants to gather a few minerals for the university and then return. The illness mentioned was a sudden inflammation of Yudin's sciatic nerve. So they set off, arriving at 11pm and spent the night in the abandoned logging camp. On the 28th, Yuri Yudin left to travel home and the rest of the group carried on up the river Lotzva, setting off at around 12 noon. The temperature was logged at good as a mere minus 8 degrees Celsius, which is 18 degrees Fahrenheit, and at half past five in the afternoon they stopped to make camp, their very first night in the tent. 
On the 29th, the group records temperatures as being minus 13 degrees Celsius, 8 Fahrenheit, a good temperature with a light breeze. They follow a Mansi trail from the Lozfa River to the Ospia River. There isn't a lot written in the group diary about this day. However, Zenaida's diary confirms they were following a Mansi trail. Surroundings are beautiful. Along the Ospia, Mansi have passed. A trail is visible, grooves and a path. We often see Mansi signs on the trail. I wonder what they write about. Now the Mansi trail goes south. On January the 30th, tensions were building between the group. Kolevatov and Thibaut took an age starting the campfire, so they had a very late start. It was becoming increasingly difficult to move cross-country, as the snow was four foot deep in places. At 5pm, they decided to stop for the night. It was minus 26 degrees Celsius, which is minus 15 Fahrenheit, with a heavy westerly wind, but they had a good site for their tents, with plenty of dry wood for the stove. Zenaida writes, Cold. Mansi Trail ended. Pine forest. There was sun in the morning, but now it is cold. All day long, we walked along the Ospia. We'll spend the night on a Mansi Trail. Kolya didn't get to be watchman, so me and Rustic will stay on duty today. Burned mittens and Yukin's quilted jacket. He cursed a lot. Today, probably, we will build a storage. As a quick aside, you will have heard the name Mansi a lot so far, so here's a bit of information because we love being informed in this podcast. At the last census, uh, it was said that there are actually only 194 Mansi left, spread out over huge distances. The Mansi are one of 45 indigenous peoples living in Russia, and the Ural Mansi speak a Finno-Ugric language. The name Mansi means forest dweller. At the time of the Dyatlov expedition, the Mansi, to some extent, hadn't been hit by the trappings and problems that come along with the ideals of a more modern Russia, and they flourished herding reindeer, hunting and fishing. Okay, so back to the story. On January the 31st, they set off at 10am, however only managed one mile an hour, the Dyatlov diary reads... Had a surprisingly good overnight. Air is warm and dry, though it's minus 18 to minus 24 degrees Celsius. Walking is especially hard today. We can't see the trail. Have to grope our way through at times. Can't do more than 1.52 kilometres, one mile per hour. Trying out new ways to clear the path. The first in line drops his backpack, skis forward for five minutes, comes back for a 10 to 15 minute break, then catches up with the group. That's one way to keep laying ski tracks non-stop. Hard on the second hiker, though, who has to follow the new trail with full gear on his back. The diary also describes the winds, though warm as having a speed like the draft of aeroplanes at takeoff. They trekked back southwards towards the river, as they were in an open space and there was nowhere appropriate to leave a cache of supplies. The entry from the Dyatlov diary says... We're exhausted, but start setting up for the night. Firewood is scarce, mostly damp furs. We build the campfire on the logs. Too tired to dig a fire pit. Dinner's in the tent, nice and warm. Can't imagine such comfort on the ridge with howling wind outside, hundreds of kilometres away from human settlements. This is the very last entry in any of the group's diaries. 
It's assumed at this point that the Dyatlov group leaves some of their gear in a forest on a platform set high above ground as this was found later during the search. On February the 1st, they set out fairly late and walked for only two and a half miles where they set a tent, again, which was found on the slope just 10 miles from Mount Autorton. Thanks for listening to this, the first part of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Next time, I'll be telling Jim all about the search, what was found, and we'll be discussing the multitude of theories surrounding the incidents and digging deep to try and work out which ones have the most basis in actual fact. Don't forget that you can find this podcast on all your favourite listening platforms, except for Apple, because they're being glacial in their approval process. And please do give us a comment and a five-star review if you enjoyed. It's the only way that others are going to find us because of the way their system works. And so you'll be doing us a huge favour and we'll be thanking you at the end of the next podcast for your help. So I better get on and start doing some more research. So until next time, take care and keep being fascinated by those history mysteries. (laughs) 